Hello and welcome to BJGP Interviews. My name is Ewan Lawson and in this episode uh, we've got an interview with Sharon Dixon about her research uh, titled Supporting Patients with Female Genital Mutilation in Primary Care, a qualitative study exploring the perspectives of GPs working in England. It's just been published in the BJGP. Uh, now, Sharon is a GP herself uh, and a researcher at the Health Experiences Research Group at the Nuffield Department of Primary Care Healthcare Sciences at the University of Oxford. And so I started off by asking Sharon to tell us a little bit more about the scale of the problem and how many women are affected in the UK. I'm starting with actually a really difficult question because um, because true prevalence data is quite hard to pin down. The best um, estimates that I've come across are the ones that are most that I've seen most commonly cited, for example, in kind of a lot of uh, Department of Health Communications, um, which is the estimate we used in our paper, which was McFarlane um, and Orkney's work, where they um, used 2011 census data and birth registration data, and they used practice prevalence data in countries of origin, and they did um, a modelling estimate, which is where the um, numbers of 137,000 and girls um, comes from, and they modelled it across England and estimated that um, although there were denser, you know, more concentrated groups in urban areas, it was estimated that wouldn't be a local authority area in England that didn't have families living there and who might be potentially affected by female genital mutilation. I guess the uncertainties, so those are estimates, they're not prevalence numbers, it's a statistical model. Um, and the contextual factors are um, changing patterns of migration, increasing knowledge and awareness of other countries where FGM might be practiced. Um, so for example, the Far East, Indonesia, Malaysia, thinking about um, how we extrapolate changing community practice, current practice and prevalence levels. Um, and I guess there's the migration data that we know about and that's and then there's some that might not be captured in census and birth registration data. So they are estimates, but I think the conclusion has to be that families and communities who might be affected by FGM are distributed you know, in every local authority across England. And so I think having some awareness and some reflections on how you might approach that as a GP is, is relevant to all GPs. Yeah, I thought that was really striking in the introduction to your um, paper that you quoted that McFarlane number of one hundred thirty-seven thousand. And yeah, I, yes, it, it was a really it was a very difficult question because clearly it's the kind of problem that isn't you know it tends to be under the surface as well in terms of um, it won't be easy to get good data. But I thought that was really striking that you know there's not a local authority in the country that won't have women that are affected by FGM. So um, you obviously went further. T tell us a little bit more about your paper. What did you do in this research study? I mean, what we were very lucky to do starting the paper was to um, have the opportunity to run a patient and public involvement and stakeholder kind of priority setting project, which really was the bedrock that all of this came from. And in context, it's hugely relevant here. This was happening at, between 2014 and 2015 when a lot of the new policies um, were being introduced and when there was a very welcome spotlight on FGM and service provision and supporting practitioners and communities to work towards eliminating FGM. Um, and 
but so we went out and asked community members and uh, professionals, including social workers and health professionals um, and teachers, what they thought needed to be researched or what would help us, what we needed to know in order to be able to best support um, and care for and look after the, the community members who we were encountering in our professional roles. Um, and this question of understanding the impact of the policies on how able enabled um, people are to access care or to talk about FGM while they're in care was, was one of the questions that came up from that project, there, there were others. Um, but another question that came up from that project was where does the GP fit into this? And I think a lot of experience of services had been around obstetrics or midwifery. And I would say that um, from my review of the literature, that's where most of the research has happened as well. And so we started wondering, primary care, there are things that make it different. Um, and we, you know, for a start, you might not know why the woman's coming in. If you're going to obstetrics or midwifery services, or you're going to a specialist clinic, you have a framework, you might know what you're going to be asked. Um, that's not the case for us in primary care. And I think the other critical thing are these longitudinal relationships. So it's not a transactional encounter in primary care. We're embedding all of our conversations in long-term care. Um, and we have care for other family members. And so we were asked in that, where do GPs fit in? What's the role? So we set out to try and understand what we could learn about what would help and support GPs as they in turn try and care for their patients who might be affected by FGM. So that was really how we started. <clears throat> um, and we felt it had to be qualitative because we just wanted a really wide reach of, we didn't know what we were going to hear at all, <laughs> um, but we'd identified this um, from both professionals and community members as a question that warranted exploration. Um, so we just set out to, to ask them and I'm incredibly grateful to the wise and compassionate GPs who gave up their time and, and spoke to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. So you spoke to about um, 17 general practitioners um, from five English cities um, and obviously what you went through this you presented them with um, a, a fictional scenario didn't you? Yeah I mean it was it's quite an emotive topic and we didn't want anybody to feel um, and we wanted to create a safe neutral space where people could think aloud about some of the process about considerations about how they might think about thinking about things or, or take a stepwise approach to supporting her. Um, and this seemed like a safe way, a kind of way that they might feel comfortable to do that. So that was the aim by doing that. And we deliberately chose cities with varying prevalence of FGM, but where there would be some. And we mapped, tried to map our email shot um, using local data to get practices with different prevalence rates. Um, and also well, chose cities where there was a clinic and when there where there wasn't a specialist clinic. Yeah. So um, I won't read out the scenario now, but I'd encourage anybody to go and read the scenario and reflect on how, you know, as a GP or as a clinician, you might react yourself if you're presented with that scenario. It's it's very short, but it's quite powerful and it certainly gets you thinking. And you, you had participants who obviously had, you know, who were involved in regularly treating women. Um, with FGM, but also who had never been involved as well. What, what were some of the major findings? So I think the key findings were, and I guess this also is in the context that there's been a lot of relatively recent education, but very much with a safeguarding focus at the time that we were doing these interviews. Um, and I think perhaps through that lens, for many, there was a sense that FGM was potentially complex, that there was some kind of slightly 
um, complicated considerations and things that you needed to be quite careful as, as you approached it. But throughout that, they held the idea that you were bringing the core values of primary care and the core skills that you would have as a GP about approaching subjects that are potentially sensitive, about introducing subjects with consideration and care. Um, so I heard reflections on how and when to talk about it, um, whether it's appropriate to bring it up if that's not relevant to the problem that she came with, how you would embed it in a conversation when it's related to care needs. Um, we heard about, I mean, in our scenario, we started with the idea that the subject would be mentioned by the patient, they would, they would introduce the subject. But then we invited GPs to reflect on how they might approach it if she hadn't. And the considerations that were um, were perhaps um, unexpected, but actually I haven't seen documented elsewhere, were those considerations of who else is in the room and my other family members here? Who else might this mean I need to talk to? What are the language uh, issues? Uh, uh, heard reflections on acceptability and accessibility of interpreters and how that might be navigated if necessary um, and challenges around that and also a reflection on we deliberately chose a scenario that reflected the type of FGM type 3 that is perhaps most commonly depicted in my experience in FGM education so we chose it to resonate with that but I heard a lot of reflections about the knowledge and that you would want in order to care for all women who might be affected by FGM and the different types of FGM and how you might approach, what words you might use and how you might approach talking about them and what you might look for and how you might understand those care needs. So I think, I think in total, it, it was experienced as kind of relatively unfamiliar, relatively recently a part of education. Um, and, and I had GP saying, you know, I've been a GP for a long time and it's suddenly, it's kind of relatively recently come into my radar and very much with this safeguarding focus this kind of a laminated chart that says what you have to do. Um, and that's where this call really for education that covers all of primary care. Yeah, I thought there were some really interesting um, discussions were go that went on in that section as well. So even just like to the mundane things of how you GPs go about coding FGM with the kind of the the current you know there's obviously the the, the legal framework now in 20 that was introduced in 2015 about mandatory reporting but even as kind of the discussions around that just show the, the you know as you say complex issues but there's a lot of good important practical kind of discussions were going on in that in your analysis section as well well coding I think coding is often is a really big part of primary care and it is important to GPs and, we, and GPs reflected quite a lot on this absolutely could see the value for example, in ensuring that women aren't repeatedly questioned and potentially traumatised, to ensure that there is effective professional communication between people looking after her, to ensure that there's transfer of information for safeguarding. So absolutely a very key recognised um, value and importance of coding. But then the tensions about perhaps online access coding and vulnerabilities around that and, and coding for reporting purposes. And I think the other reflection on coding was almost about the rigidity of codes and this is where the discretion questions came up um, um the reflect and this was a really kind of actually very widely i heard widely held concern about i've got one code which is um at risk of fgm for the child of a mother who's had fgm but how do i individualize that how do i put that on the record if actually She's been through a holistic risk assessment. She's had a safeguarding risk assessment. She's told me she's never going to do it. Her family have abandoned practice. Um, how do I support and manage that situation? 
Yeah. So your um, your paper rounded off with a sort of a section on strategies to and resources to support women with FGM. And I wondered if you could just uh, summarize a, uh, some of those that GPs and other primary care clinicians and staff might be um, listening to might um, find useful. Yeah, well, actually, one of the things that's really exciting, I, I think is really exciting that's coming from this paper is that um, we are currently developing an, a learning resource for GPs supported by NHS England North um, that's going to pick up the questions that we were asked, that GPs asked in this paper about um, primary care focused education in the context of primary care with uh, an approach to consideration of care needs really from the cradle to grave so through adolescence including pregnancy postmenopausal needs and um, and guidance and resources for how to approach a range of care needs that women might have that you could be supporting women or signposting them to support with from primary care. It's a lovely paper, Sharon, and um, I'm incredibly grateful that you've taken the time to come and speak to us. Sharon, can you just summarise for us the key findings from your from your paper? So the key findings are that FGM has had a relatively recent focus on it and is relatively unfamiliar and complex, and it necessitates kind of careful consideration about how to approach conversations to ensure that it's um, acceptable to the woman and to her family and that there are aspects in primary care that are really important to consider and those include the long-term relationship that GPs are striving to hold with the woman with her family and also within the community and they want to hold their caring responsibilities with FGM in a way that enables the maintenance and nurturing of those relationships and I think that was a really cool finding of this paper. To do that, they were very well supported by having access to holistic and specialist services and expertise and advice when they needed it. Um, and that that was a really powerful enabling factor that would help GPs raise and explore FGM with their patients, knowing that they had services to offer to make asking about it meaningful so that you could then deliver the care that women need. And that was incredibly important. Um, they recognised the importance of the coding and reporting that they had to do, but the conversations in primary care were complicated by this and could be difficult. Um, and that was important because confidently, because trusting conversations and those conversations, they're the access point or the portal through which women are able to get the care they need, through which we can deliver and understand what women would benefit from in terms of support and they also create the opportunities we have to care for women and safeguard their families and so understanding the impact and the processes in those conversations I think it's really important. Sharon it's a wonderfully rich paper there's so many different areas we could delve into with it and I thoroughly recommend um, it to anybody listening and I hope they um, get a chance to explore it fully. Thank you so much for taking the time today. You're welcome. Thank you very much for listening to this BJGP podcast the original research papers and articles can be found at bjgp.org. The show notes and podcast audio can be found at bjgplife.com. Do share if you've enjoyed it. Subscribe via all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or your podcaster of choice. Thanks again.